Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, America. Uh, today on uh, the podcast, I think a really good one, very emotional uh, from many people on Afghanistan, the people that actually served. We bring you up to speed on all of it. We also take a look at the batting average of uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> not so good. No, no, uh, not, not, so not good. good. Opposite no. of good. Uh-uh. Um, and we bring some good news. I met with the attorney generals, the the uh, GOP attorney generals, 22 of them uh, yesterday up at a at a meeting that they have once a year. And uh, boy, I was really bolstered by the attitude and the the way they interpret their jobs. So we brought some good news. I had Eric Schmidt, who is the attorney general from Missouri. He's the guy that just got a judge to say what Joe Biden did on the border is illegal and it must be turned back to the Trump um, uh, policies. And it looks like it's such a strong ruling that it it won't go very far when the Biden administration takes it back up and tries to get it to go to the Supreme Court. It's a very strong ruling. So that's one for the good guys on a pretty dark day. Here's the podcast. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Uh, had a press conference yesterday at the presidential palace and they did this uh, cut five they were uh, singing the Quran which is beautiful and lovely and I love this particular tune Uh, you know who didn't have a press conference the White House you know who didn't wasn't seen in public Joe Biden Where's Joe Biden? Why is he not speaking out? Where was he? As the masses try to flee from Kabul, prisoners have been released. Only 5,000 prisoners were released. This is the video of it in the audio. 5,000 prisoners, some of them Al-Qaeda, some of them Taliban, and they were just released, probably because of COVID. I think the Taliban is concerned with the spread of COVID in the prisons and wanted to find, um, uh, you know, some way to deal with it. And they looked to Bill de Blasio uh, and Gavin Newsom, and they decided just to open up the prisons because of covid i'm sure nothing uh will uh will go wrong there meanwhile um the worst is happening 
I want to I want to give you a story from the New York Times. Now, listen to how this story you've seen the pictures, you know what's going on. Listen to this. It was his first day as the Taliban appointed mayor of Kunduz. His name is Gol Mohammed Elias. He was on a charm offensive. Last Sunday, the insurgents seized control of the city in northern Afghanistan, which is in shambles after weeks of fighting. Power lines were down, water supply, powered by generators, didn't reach most residents. Trash and rubble littered the streets. The civil servants who could fix these problems were hiding at home, terrified of the Taliban's return. So the insurgent commander turned mayor summoned some to his new office and persuaded them to return to work. He said, quote, our jihad is not with you in the municipality. Our jihad is against the occupiers and those who defend the occupiers. Mr. Elias told the New York Times by telephone. But day by day, as municipal offices stayed mostly empty, Mr. Elias grew more frustrated and his uh, his rhetoric grew a little harsher. Taliban fighters began going door to door searching for absentee civil workers. Hundreds of armed men set up checkpoints across the city. At the entrance to the regional hospital, a new notice appeared on the wall. Employees must return to work or face punishment from the Taliban. Just a week after the fall of the city, the first in a series of cities that the Taliban seized with breathtaking speed, the insurgents are now in effective control of all of Afghanistan, and they now must function as administrators that can provide basic services to hundreds of thousands of people. The experience of those in Kunduz offers a glimpse of how the Taliban may govern and what may be in store for the rest of the country. In just days, the insurgents, frustrated with their failed efforts to cajole civilian uh, civil servants back into work, began instilling a little terror, according to the residents reached by telephone. I'm afraid because I don't know what will happen next or what they will do, said one who asked not to be identified for fear of retaliation by the Taliban. Three days after the Taliban took control of Kunduz, the civil, a civil servant received a call from an insurgent fighter telling him to go to his office. The mayor of Kunduz wanted to speak with him. The mayor uh, invited Mr. Om, uh, Omar Hill, uh, who had been staying home since the retreat of the government forces, as insurgents flooded into the streets and a sense of unease gripped the battered city. He had experienced a similar moment twice before when the Taliban briefly in 2015 and 2016 seized the city. Both times the insurgents were pushed back with the help of American airstrikes. But this time, days after the Taliban took control, the entire Afghan army corps charged with reclaiming the city surrendered to the insurgents. They handed over all their weapons and vehicles in a stark sign that they would not be rescued. When he arrived at the municipal office to speak to the new mayor, the sprawling compound looked eerily untouched by war. But the New York Times writes, inside the building, he joined eight municipal employees and Mr. Elias, you know, the new mayor. He introduced himself as the new mayor. 
a young man with a long beard, Mr. Elias assured them that they would not be targeted by the Taliban and instructed them to return to work to improve people's lives and morale. Sharing his mobile number, he told them, call if you have any trouble with the Taliban fighters. We've captured the city, and now we can assure the people that we will provide the basic services. The mayor was quoted in another phone interview. Halfway through the meeting, a shopkeeper pleaded with the Taliban bodyguard to see the mayor. Like hundreds of others, his kiosk had been mostly destroyed by fire during the Taliban's final push. He said shopkeepers, fearing for what remained of their stores that they would be looted, wanted the Taliban's promise that they could return to the market to collect their things safely. The mayor complied. He even provided reimbursement for the taxi and bus fare that they spent on moving their goods. For the rest of the day, the mayor met with other municipal leaders trying to get services restored. At the state-owned Water and Sewage Corporation, he demanded that the water supply be turned back on. When a manager told him the power lines would first have to be repaired, he told the director of the electricity department to compel his employees to return. At the local health department, the new Taliban director of health delivered the same message to the hospital staff. And insurgent fighters gave water to the health workers and offered 500 Afghanis, around $6, to each of the hospital guards to pay for a dinner that night. There was some good progress, writes the New York Times. Oh, my gosh. I bet they get a Nobel Prize for this. I bet they get, I, I bet they, 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 it's got to win a Pulitzer, don't you think? Did Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilan Omar write that article? Was that, uh, isn't that amazing? <laughs> isn't that amazing? I will say that the, the Times did write some pretty devastating things about this as well, and along with a lot of other mainstream media. I mean, it, it, a lot of these headlines, The Atlantic, uh, this headline is Biden's betrayal of Afghans will live in infamy. And there's a lot. I think just how quickly and how terribly this has turned has even shaken some of the mainstream media people. Now, of course, they'll probably come back uh, eventually here. But I was surprised to see the even mainstream coverage being largely critical, with the exception, of course, notably of what you just read, which was pathetic. Um, the fecklessness. This one is uh, written by the bulwark.com. I like this one. The fecklessness is not limited to Biden himself. His wider administration is complicit. State Department spokesman Ned Price has conceded the Taliban is already committing war times, but he warned them that if they continue They'd be internationally isolated. Oh, not into really internationally isolated. Oh, boy, they're going to be canceled. Culpability for the disaster rests on one other place. They write the American people. Hmm. White House officials have privately reassured themselves by noting that polls show an overwhelming majority of Americans support withdrawing the troops from Afghanistan, according to the Hill. So the Biden teams find reassurance in the fact that most Americans don't care about the risk of another 9-11, ethnic cleansing, or the destruction of a future for Afghan women. Really? So they are blaming the American people for that. A, that's what leadership is all about. And B, I don't know about you, but... I do care 
about the women and the children and the future of the women and children in Afghanistan. I do care about the risk of another 9-11. I do care about ethnic cleansing. I just don't want to be there forever with no mission. It doesn't mean, oh, I don't care. Just pull out and let the whole thing collapse and let evil just win and sweep a nation. What evidence do you have that you care about women in the Middle East being uh, tortured? Uh, uh, I mean, you know, only it's not the Nazarene like fund. Right. That's it. Just that's the Nazarene it. fund. But I mean, this is uh, every, there are a lot of people who wanted to get out of there. I mean, everyone wants to get out yes. of there at some level. The idea was to get out of there with some level of competence. It wasn't just like let the entire thing go to flames and have the Taliban inside the presidential palace in two days. No one supported that. Yes, there was a there's an idea that people didn't want to be engaged in this area forever, but that was to go along with that was the idea that it wouldn't turn into exactly what it turned into in two days in two days. I mean, you were talking about this, Jason. We we mentioned this off the air. You were here. You're on my show. I don't know a few months ago, and you said, "Yeah, I, I, it's going to be back in Taliban control in six months." And you came on here the other day, and you said, "Hey, well, I think it might be till September 11th." We didn't even make it till Monday. That was a show we did on Friday. And they were in taking pictures and doing press conferences and singing inside the presidential palace two days later. This is the, the, the most catastrophic handling of any situation of any president in my lifetime. I've never seen anything like this. I'm continually blown away all weekend at how pathetic this is. I've never seen anything like it. Have you ever seen anything like this? Yeah, I. But, but I am older than you. Yeah. So I saw um, Iran with Jimmy Carter, mm. and I saw with... But uh, like, again, like that, Iran with Jimmy... We didn't have control of Iran, right? Like, this is... this. Is, this we were an embassy in, inside of another country. This is, Yes, I understand that we, you know, we are also an embassy in another country in Afghanistan, but, but that was under our control and our direction for 20 years. I was also going to say I'm old enough to remember, and I think it was Ford, when we pulled out of Vietnam. Yeah, Saigon and, is the one thing people go back to. And everyone knew. Everyone knew. The argument was, we pull out, the communist will come in and slaughter all of these mm-hmm. people. And it's going to be a very bad thing. No, no, no. They're going to be prepared. It's going to be fine. We can leave. You know, it's just a bloodbath over there. And we shouldn't be involved in blah, 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 blah. And they were climbing over the fences of our embassy. And when I love this, when uh, Blinken said, you know, this is definitely not not Saigon. You are not going to see helicopters land on the roof of our embassy. No. You know why? Because our billion dollar embassy had a helicopter landing pad down on the ground, not on the roof like we did in Saigon. <laughs> not to mention it's not even our embassy anymore. No, it's not. We've got a billion dollars into the thing billion. and we just, just handed it over to them. I mean, at least though in Saigon, you know, test me on my history here, but we knew this was coming in, in Saigon. Yeah, yeah, we did. And we evacuated a lot of the Americans, and we left a specific number. I want to say it was 1,500, or I can't remember exactly how many it was, which was our 1,250. That was our belief that we could get, we could uh, evacuate those people before the Taliban 
or in this case, uh, the, the Vietnamese uh, got there. Uh, the Northern Vietnamese. Correct. So the situation was like we then started evacuating the Vietnamese that we wanted to get out. And we had this plan that, okay, once they hit this point, when we have to start taking the Americans out. And that's why it was such a close call. But we knew and, it was coming for months. Right. And we were evacuating those who helped us. Yeah. And we he, didn't. Ev- we aren't evacuating the people who helped us. That was our complaint two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. we're going to be lucky to get the Americans out. We had to send troops in to evacuate our own people. Yeah, but only 5,000. Which it continues to escalate. We're going to have about 100,000 troops on the airport by next week. I think, I think the, the, the newest figures are 6,000 to secure that airport. An which, airport. again, was more than double what we had when we said we were going to get them out. We had around 35. Incredible. The best of the Glenn Beck Program. Good news on the border. And I am going to let the man who actually uh, led the way on this tell you about what it all means. Eric Schmidt, he is the Missouri Attorney General. I spent some time with him uh, yesterday at a meeting of attorney generals and uh, invited him on the program today to uh, meet you again. We've had him on before. Eric, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Glenn. So, first of all, congratulations. Tell the American people what happened on Friday. It's a big win, Glenn, for border security, uh, for national security, to stop the flow of illegal immigration, drug trafficking, human trafficking, with the judge's order that he issued a little after 5 o'clock. The federal judge issued a little after 5 o'clock on Friday. Um, So, to give it some context, on day one, uh, Joe Biden reversed President Trump's very successful remain in Mexico policy or otherwise known as the migrant protection protocols, which is Uh to say that as people are coming here, uh, if you're seeking asylum, which, by the way, it was found that nine out of 10 asylum claims were bogus, um, the Biden folks didn't even acknowledge that or even reference that. The judge points that out. They didn't even do their due diligence. But as you were coming here seeking asylum, that Mexico was the waiting room because What we know is that if you let those folks into the United States, give them a court date on the honor system, and they're released into the interior of the United States, you don't ever see them again. And that's exactly what has been happening. The 1.1 million people since January have come here illegally. And probably, not probably, but, but it has created a perverse incentive. And the judge cited this, that if you have people who get paid to get people here illegally, if they know all they have to do is say, we're seeking asylum and they are in the United States, it's very lucrative for these really bad guys to take advantage, by the way, of people along the way too. Um, It's big business. And so the Trump policy that said Mexico is the waiting room significantly cut down on this illegal activity. We said the Biden administration can't do what they did, which is to reverse that policy, and a judge agreed with us. So the good news here is that um, we're going to get back to President Trump's remain in Mexico policy, and it's a great example of federalism at work. Okay, thankfully, so, so hang on. Before we get into this, I, I just I want to know a couple of things. 
um, the judge said that they had to reverse it. Why? What was in your case that showed that they didn't have the right to drop this particular uh, thing that Trump had in, in place? Great question. So on day one, and we can talk about some other executive actions that President Biden took that were illegal. On day one, in basically two sentences, just says we're reversing it and opens up the borders. Okay. The reality is, under a very technical scheme, the, uh, uh, the uh, Administrative Procedure Act, you have to go through a process of taking in notice and comment, hearing from people who want to weigh in, um, and balancing all of those things before you make an administrative change. Now, I would argue that we've allowed way too many administrative departments and department heads to make law, and we ought to allow that, yeah. you know, got to get back to Article One branch. But be that as it may, they didn't even do that. Then we filed the lawsuit. Then they came back in a haphazard way to try to cover their tracks and say, oh, no, we did, actually did consider this. And, judge, and the judge said, no, you didn't. You didn't in the first place. You didn't later. Uh, you've been caught red-handed. This is an illegal act. This is an illegal executive action. Therefore, we are back now to the policy that was lawfully enacted by the Trump administration to remain in Mexico policy. So this is, again, an example of you have to push back. We're not going to accept this sort of lawlessness of the Biden administration. And they've done this on social cost of greenhouse gases. They've done this on the Keystone XL pipeline. And there's a number of lawsuits in the pipeline there to challenge this. But this is by far and away, I think, the most significant victory against the Biden administration for these kind of actions. Um, I'm speaking to the uh, attorney general of Missouri, Eric Schmidt, um, who um, who led the way on this. Now, Eric, you say this is a very good thing because they've been ordered to do it. Well, they've been ordered to do other things and they're not obeying the courts. They're dismissing the courts. Also, this was happening in a district court, if I'm not mistaken, here in Texas. Um, what makes you think that this will be supported? Because the government is going to appeal. What makes oh, you yeah. believe this will actually win at the highest level? Well, this was a very well-reasoned opinion. And I think the judge, who was an Amarillo, and by the way, the Department of Justice tried very hard to move it out of that because... Uh, this particular DOJ was trying to get it to an Obama-appointed judge. Uh, but the reality is the, the rule of law prevailed here, and that's all you really want from the judiciary as far as I'm concerned, to interpret the law as it's written, not how they want it to be. That's not the left's um, view of, of, of what they want judges to do. They're much more you know, in favor of judicial activism. But the judge gave them seven days to appeal. So they would appeal to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which – uh, is a strong conservative, um, and I mean that in the sense of, you know, they rule based on the law. So we're confident that the Court of Appeals will reject the appeal. But this is a big deal because if you think of what's happening at the border, it's a total disaster. We've not there's a 21 year high in illegal crossings. You have in Missouri's interest in this, by the way. Um, not being a border state is we've taken on human trafficking. We've spent a lot of resources. Our state has made it a priority to take on the dark underworld of human trafficking. And these cartels uh, are very, very engaged in human trafficking, in, including trafficking drugs across the border. And it's very profitable for them right now because yeah. people are you know, being released into the interior of the United States. Um, um, Eric, we spent time together yesterday. I was lucky enough to be um, invited up to the 
Republican attorney general's um, meeting, uh, which I think you have, what, once a year? <clears throat> and <clears throat> yep. and I was uh, I was impressed with how many of you guys uh, know exactly what you are up against and that you are the last line of defense. I mean, after you guys, we're down to our local sheriff. You are the last line of defense to be able to stand for the the Bill of Rights. What was the yeah, look? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and, and, you know, in our discussion, I think that this really is a fight to save America. And I don't I don't that mean, mean that rhetorically in some grandiose speech. I mean, it very practically. I think the republic is truly on the line. And I think that. For us, and this is what I believe, and I think a lot of Americans, certainly your listeners do, I know you do, that America is the most noble, important experiment in the history of the world. What the founders said was, everybody before us in 1776 had it exactly backwards. We don't need to ask, our rights don't come from a king or a queen or some despot. Our rights come from God. And what government is, what government is, is a project to protect those rights, to protect those individual rights that were given by God. So your ability to speak your mind, your ability to defend yourself, are born with those things. And America is uh, very unique in the history of the world. It's an exception. That's what American exceptionalism means. We are exceptional in the sense that most places around the world still to this day don't believe that. And if we lose this fight to save America, there's no going back. We are the last best hope for mankind. We got to get it right. So when you talk about these things that are happening in Washington, D.C., federalizing elections and undermining election security just to obtain power by using what they were doing during the pandemic to loosen those uh, integrity measures just to gain power, to teach our kids to despise America, as opposed to teaching them what America really is about, the Bill of Rights, which is very important. But most, you know, I think it starts with the Declaration of Independence, which is our mission statement. It says who we are, what we believe what we stand for and the constitution then sets forth that framework to protect those rights. The states came together to create a federal government of limited powers and the people reign supreme, not some sovereign authority who claims that they got their power from God and we have to ask permission. That's very unique. We don't talk about that as much anymore, but I certainly view my mission as an attorney general and now running for the United States Senate as protecting that protecting individual rights. I, somebody asked me, and we, we announced a cold case arrest last week uh, in St. Louis, and as part of my job as Attorney General of the State's Chief Law Enforcement Officer, Legal Officer, and I was asked the question, how do you feel about fear being used right now to get people to wear masks? And I said, there's, you know, basically, there's nothing new in the sun. That's what every dictator and every tyrant has said since the beginning of the world They've used it, fear, to aggregate and accumulate power. I do not want to live in some futuristic, dystopian, biomedical security state. And I'm going to do everything I can, with the powers that I swore to protect the Constitution, to protect individual rights. And I think we have to be absolutely committed to that. And if we are, if we band together on that, we're going to win this thing. And our kids will look back, our grandkids will look back and be very, very proud of each. And you don't have to be the attorney general to stand up for that. I see people going to school board meetings. I see people going to city council meetings for standing up who don't want to take this anymore. They believe in America and what we are and who we are and what we can be. So 
that's a very important role for for me as AG. I uh, we're talking to Eric Schmidt, uh, the Missouri Attorney General, and he is uh, going to be running for um, uh, Senate in the state. I I um, I had to leave right after I I spoke to all of you um last night and i i'm wondering how many of the people because i didn't get a chance to ask the whole room out of the 22 that were there how many of them are on the same page with you now that that you're saying what you're saying this morning i think it's a very committed group um it is a very committed group to these principles we have a unique role in our system in that as we talked about governments our project to protect those rights that's our job that's our job to protect the rights. My job isn't to give cover to some authoritarian regime because it's the government. That's not my job. My job is to make sure that people can say their piece under the First Amendment, that under the Second Amendment, people can protect themselves. And so when that's so you see a lot of the work that we do. We're leading the brief on making sure that this restrictive regime in New York, where you have to tell the government or some bureaucrat that you're really in danger to be able to conceal carry. That's not what the founders ever intended. We're fighting that fight. Whether it's, you know, the abortion issue going to the United States Supreme Court, we're fighting that fight. Whether it's protecting First Amendment rights or, you know, you could go down the, pick the issue. Yeah. I think right now pushing back against the federal government and, by the way, also pushing back against local governments um, that want to treat people as subjects and not citizens. We're committed to that fight. Um, I believe it in my core. And I'm telling you, Glenn, you, you know it from your listeners there is something happening right now in the city council rooms, in the school board rooms, in these hearing rooms. People don't want to lose America. They don't because it is this shining city on a hill. And we've always been a people that wanted to know what's on the other side of that mountain. And what people see right now is a cliff. And we have a choice. What is our role going to be in the future of this republic? Because as Ben Franklin said, you know, when he walked out of the convention, it's you've got a republic, man, if you can keep it. It's hard work because human nature, and the founders knew this, human nature is, you see it across the world, it's happened before, is to uh, accumulate power, dole out favors to your cronies. So the founders knew that spreading out power among the branches uh, with federalism, making sure that no one person or branch was too powerful, all of that, as is, is federalism works horizontally and vertically, was meant to do one thing, protect individual liberty. Eric. And that's our path forward. I, I can't thank you enough for everything you're doing. We're watching you guys carefully. I am, um, I, you know, yesterday I offered support on anything that we can do to help you guys out because I do believe you are the fire line. Thank you so much. And uh, my best to everybody else that are having meetings this week uh, with you, all the thank attorney generals. Thank you so much. By the way, I want to thank you for all you're doing to to talk about these issues, too, and your listeners. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thank you. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck Program. It was an exceptionally hot summer morning on 13th of July, writes The Guardian. When people in the Malistan district of southern Afghan province woke up to find that the conflict that had swirled around them for weeks had finally reached their small town and Taliban fighters were closing in. 
By noon of that day, 22-year-old Fatima, seven months pregnant, was seeking shelter from bullets raining down on her home in her village, which was caught in the vicious crossfire between Taliban militants and government forces. Surviving the battle was not the only thing on her mind, however. Her family were terrified that the Taliban gained control of their village. They would begin taking women like Fatima as they had taken other young women in parts of the country falling under their control. We had heard of cases where the Taliban would kill young men and sexually abuse girls and young women of the family. The fears of Fatima and her family were justified. When the Taliban finally came to our village, they wanted to take a young girl with them. But she ran to the roof of her house and ended her life. Ah. Nazarene Fund was uh, started because when our troops were pulled out of um, of Iraq, something called ISIS uh, came in and they were kidnapping and raping and killing uh, families, but mainly women and children uh, were bringing them into sex slavery. Um, we started the Nazarene Fund, and now our chief operating officer, our CEO, is Rudy Atala. Uh, and I wanted to get him on the phone um, right away today to see what he knows about the situation in Afghanistan and if he sees a way for us eventually to help. Rudy, how are you, sir? Hey, good. Good to hear your voice, Glenn. Yeah, good to talk to you. Um, tell me... Tell me what you know about what's happening in Afghanistan and how bad it is for the people that we've left behind. Uh, it's extremely bad. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting calls right now from Gulf states, from uh, from the region, from Lebanon, from all over the place. Um, if you if you watch uh, the the news media in the Middle East, um, they're showing you know repeats of of, of people falling off C-17s on takeoff. Uh, people dying, people scrambling, looking looking for ways to escape Afghanistan. We just absolutely uh, evacuated without leaving them a single choice or protecting any of them. And uh, all my military friends uh, that served over there, I had, in fact, I have a former Navy SEAL here with me staying uh, at my house, and we were talking about it. He, uh, he did uh, four combat tours in Afghanistan. He said, all, all our... Folks, our allies that, that that helped us on the ground now are stuck. And what's really going to happen is eventually Al-Qaeda is going to get its foothold. Terrorism is going to go back on the rise. And the people, the people that, uh, you know, are not killed, that we've trained, are eventually going to flip because they want to survive and, sure. and, and maintain themselves. And so, so these trained individuals are now going to be working against us. Not only that. But now Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have access to U.S. armament, U.S. weapons, U.S. Drones. US, uh, knowledge. Drones. Drones. Yes, drones. Absolutely. Scan Eagles. We used the Scan Eagle uh, when we did the Marisk Alabama hostage rescue. So, so yes, and China's in there, recognize them already, is going to recognize the Afghans. The Russians are going to recognize the Afghans. You can bank on Al-Qaeda 3.0 coming back with Augusto. And sooner or later, we'll start seeing all these terrorist attacks around the world. And what breaks my heart and what really frustrates me more than anything, everything that we worked 20 years 
to 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 achieve is down the drain now we got to start from from ground zero again because of this very poor decision by the white house rudy um are we going to be able to be in a situation to where we can help these women and children at some point as the nazarene fund we're i'm i'm looking i'm looking at different ways to do that um it's it's not going to be easy. We have we no longer have any allies in the region. I mean, it's it's just down. Now, Pakistan, the church there is uh, under constant persecution. Now, Afghanistan obviously has fallen. There's nobody in the region that we if we work, we wa- we're going to have to work very quietly. And and I'm uh, you know I need just need to figure out the best ways to to support these people, whether it's in place or slowly get them out of the country. I mean, it's it's. Uh, as you said in your opening remarks, we sh- we're still dealing with the problems in Syria from poor decisions during the Obama administration. And, and we st- we're still rescuing kidnapped women and children. There are still thousands missing. And that's an ongoing situation. So Afghanistan is going to be in the same, in the same uh, genre. But, but uh, you know, right now it's extremely dangerous. But I'm hoping that we're going to find a way to do something. Rudy, thank you very much. Our prayers are with you and and everybody that um, is part of our military. Uh, this has got to be a just a brutal, brutal weekend uh, for you and um, your comrades. Oh, it's a gut punch. I bet. Yes. Thank you yes. so much, Rudy. Thank you. God bless. That's uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Rudy Atala. He is the Chief Operating Officer of the Nazarene Fund, uh, something that you uh, founded helping women and children and all slaves um, and religious minorities that are trapped uh, behind enemy lines. We try to get them out. You can find out more or make a donation to the NazareneFund.org now. Na, 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 na.